Part Two of After World's End by Jack Williamson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After World's End, Part Two, Chapter Six Cosmic Storm. Be it proclaimed to all technomatons and men, in the name of Tedron Du, Emperor of the Galaxy, by Gugan Kull, Admiral of the Twelfth Sector Fleet of the Galactic Guard, that all human natives of the planet Earth, who escaped the recent destruction of that planet in accordance with the decree of the Emperor, their very escape being overt treason, shall be seized wherever found and dealt to death, in the manner reserved for traitors against the empire of technomatons and men and the person of the Lord of the Stars. That ominous proclamation had been printed on the record strip of the telescreen. Rogo Nug had just completed repair of the burned-out circuits, and Big Zerik Um had suggested, a little apprehensively, that we had better leave the solar system. Both you and Berryhorn are native Earthmen, he argued. That is obvious to anyone familiar with the evolutionary adaptations of the natives of the different planets. If we should happen to be seized by old Gugan Kull, his big white hands made an unpleasant gesture. But Kel Aaron shook his yellow head. His gray eyes were cold and clear as polar ice, and there was something startling in their impact. No, he said flatly. The very proclamation suggests that some refugees escape the doomed planet. We're going to search. Until we find Varel and the stone. Grief and dread shadowed his eyes or until we find that she is dead and the stone destroyed." He went out with Jaron Rock in the vacuum armor to paint the hull of the berryhorn with a dead black stuff that reflected no light, hence made that little craft all but invisible in the dark gulf of space, unless it chanced to be seen against some luminous body. Then hanging cautiously in the bleak abyss, avoiding the fleet of Gugon Kull, we began the weary search. The moon had been flung away upon an independent orbit, when that incredible force checked the earth. And there were new mountainous masses flying in the void that must have been torn from the planet itself. With the telethron beam equipment coupled to the telescreen, we scanned the moon and those hurtling fragments. In the rocky wilderness outside the domed cities of the moon, we found a dozen ships that had crossed before the planets had been torn apart but two great cruisers were already hanging beside the moon, and swift patrol-boats, looking like tiny gray comets with crimson tails, were darting down upon the refugees. Some tried to hide amid the rocks or to defend themselves. But they were helpless against the blue, dazzling needles of the baritron rays, whose touch could explode a whole mountain into a frightful inferno. Kel Aaron boiled to witness such slaughter. He stalked up and down the narrow central corridor of the berryhorn, lean jaw white, fists clenched. Varel, he kept muttering, we must save ourselves, for Varel and the stone. We cruised on to follow the fragments of the earth. A few survivors clung to them, in the sealed hulls of aircraft, or in improvised breathing masks, but none that we saw bore any likeness to Varel Aaron and scores of quick little patrol-boats were already hunting them down, turning flaming rays on every twisted scrap of wreckage that had escaped the greater cataclysm. Kel Aaron, as we searched, talked a little of the girl. His voice was dry and husky, 
he would speak of their childhood together, and then come back with a jerk to realization of the present tragedy. We were strong children, he said. We worked, for there were no robots in that hidden valley, only the simplest machines. I worked with a hoe in the narrow fields below the spring, and Varel went every day to herd the goats in the dry uplands. Sometimes, when my work was done, I would go with her. And now she may be dead." He bit his lip, and it was a little while before he spoke again. Varel was a brave girl, he said. She was lithe and tanned. She had impish greenish eyes and bright red hair. I remember one day when we left the goats and climbed high up among the rocks toward an eagle's nest. She was lighter and swifter than I and better at climbing. She was afraid neither of falling nor of the attacks of the screaming birds. She climbed far ahead of me and reached the nest, and sat laughing at me until I reached her. I wanted to throw the young birds out, for there were the bones of a kid beside the nest, but she pitied their helplessness and made me leave them. It was that day that I first kissed her, and we pledged each other all our love. We would find another unknown valley we promised, and forget the stone and the robots and all the trials of mankind. But it was not two years before she was chosen, because all the warders knew her courage and her strength and her faith to be the custodian. If only the stone had struck at Malgarth when she first received it! For she promised that she would beg it to! His voice choked off, and he swayed wearily down the corridor again. Jaren Rock and Rogonug and Zeragum tired of our perilous quest. My own hope was gone, and I begged Kel'Aren to abandon it. "'We've seen the fleet search all the solar system,' I told him. "'There can't have been any survivors, and the rays have already burned all we have seen. There can't be any use.' "'Even now,' insisted Kel'Aren, "'she may live.' This lean young fighting man the last son, perhaps, of the murdered Earth, made some precise adjustment to the controls of the searching telethrine beam. An impatient sweep of his head flung back long yellow hair. His eyes smoldered with a stubborn light. Varel, he insisted, may be still alive. She may be clinging to some fragment that was hurled beyond the range of the search. She may have been picked up by some passing freighter that carried her to safety. No, we must search so long as we can." The telescreen shimmered and cleared again, and upon it I saw a colossal gray cruiser, driving straight upon us. Her armored nose, bristling with the gleaming crystal needles of the baritrine projectors, filled half the screen. The flaming atomic exhaust of her repulsors behind made a wide crimson halo against the dark of space. Kel Aaron caught a quick little breath of alarm and spun the dials. The screen flickered again, and then showed a dark, massive, bearded face. Its lips were thickly sensual, cruel. Its eyes seemed stupid, and they glinted with yellow malice. "'The Admiral,' whispered Kel Aaron. "'Gugan Kull. He must be giving some command. We'll listen.' He touched some control, and a guttural, triumphant voice boomed from the screen. The first word, oddly, had the familiar ring of my own name. Barryhorn. The ship is coated with some light-absorbing pigment, 
but our magnetectors have picked it up. Pirate and Earthman, the Falcon is twice our prey. The Berryhorn must be surrounded." A hard bright smile had set the face of Cal Aaron. The gray eyes narrowed until he looked almost hawk-like in reality. So, they're after us. The telescreen shimmered again and showed a wide black rectangle of space. The sun was a sharp white disk, and the stars were an unfamiliar pattern. Nearly all the constellations I had known had dissolved in a million years of change, and there was a little cluster of crimson points that crept among the rest. Half the Twelfth Sector Fleet, muttered Cal Aaron. Six hundred cruisers, after us. He called Jaron Rock from his bunk. They held a swift consultation. Technical terms were confusing to me, but I understood that the space contraction drive of the Berryhorn gave our craft the advantage in maneuverability, and that the newer cosmical repulsion drive of the Admiral's cruisers, what it left them a little clumsier about getting under way, gave them by far the greater ultimate speed. We can keep ahead of them for a time, the Saturnian admitted apprehensively, but in the end they can run us down and every cruiser carries a hundred patrol-boats that is our equal in fighting power. It was simply a mistake to stay in search so long. No, the Earthman insisted stubbornly, we must find Varel Aaron. He consulted the charts, reels of transparent film viewed through a stereoscopic magnifier which gave a three-dimensional image of the array of worlds in space. He wrapped swift commands into the ship's phones the hull drummed to the swift rhythm of the engines. The sun diminished to a yellow point behind, and was lost amid greater luminaries. But the red stars of the fleet grew brighter, and they spread ever wider across the black of space. Jaron stood like a grim dark statue over the controls. "'Kel,' he called in a deep, grave voice, "'there's an area of cosmic storm ahead. They're spreading out, trying to hem us against that.' I think we had better double back. There's one chance in a million. No, said Cal Aaron. Follow the course I gave you. On the telescreen the navigator showed me the storm. Against the familiar panorama of space, the velvety blackness, the hard, changeless, many-hued atoms of stars, the nebulous dust of silver, against that stark eternal beauty sprawled an ugly cloud. It was many-armed, like an octopus of darkness, and it flickered with a weird, angry green. "'There it is,' said the Saturnian, "'a condensation of matter so tenuous and vast that its gravitational energies never gathered it into a star. A true cosmic storm!' Awe deepened his voice. "'Tempests of incandescent gas, rain of molten metal, hail of meteoric fragments, lightning of atomic energy.' and Kel commands me to drive straight into it." The crimson stars behind were brighter now. Lines of them spread out, to right and to left, above and below, as if to herd us into the storm. And among them flashed points of ominous blue. The blue points were baritron beams, I knew, jets of baritron particles, the mysterious heavy X-particles of the physics of my own day they could reach out to smash the very atoms in a target a million miles away. Seeking to vary the strained anxiety of that race for life, I went back into the engine-room. 
hunched, gnome-like amid the strange shining bulks of his machines, Rogo Nug was chewing steadily on a wad of his gunaroon. He spat into a purple-stained can, and plaintively observed, "'Look at that! By Malgar's brazen bowels, Kel is making me burn the very life out of the converters!' He pointed to a crystal tube, with drops of water falling swiftly down it. Water was the fuel of the berryhorn. Hydrogen atoms in the converter were built into helium, with the packing fraction liberated as pure energy to activate the space contractors. The freed oxygen renewed the atmosphere aboard. A red light was flashing. Beside it, a gong clanged at monotonous intervals. The warning, muttered Rogonug, overload. Tension of dread drew me back to the pilot room. That appalling cloud of green flickering darkness had grown against the diamond field ahead. Its spiral arms reached out as if to grasp us. I tried to comprehend its vastness. A hundred light-years meant six hundred trillion miles. The pursuing cruisers drew inexorably closer. The formation changed again, so that they formed a double circle of crimson flecks, brighter than the stars. The flashes of blue came faster. Abruptly, beside us, flamed out a blue-white sun. I shrank and blinked from its burst of blistering radiation. A stray meteor from the cloud, that a beam caught, commented the impassive dark Saturnian. It might as well have been the ship. His face a grim-set mask, Kel Aaron came down from the little ray-gun turret of the berryhorn. The range of their beams is about nine times ours, he said softly means about eighty times the power." He went to the telescreen. Wonder what our friend the Admiral has to say by now. That stolidly dark, craftily stupid face flashed on the screen again, and the great guttural voice thumped from the cabinet. "'Must not escape, for he is the last surviving Earthman. I have just received a communication that should increase your interest in the chase. The corporation offers all the revenues of the twelve worlds of Lekan to be divided among those responsible for the capture or death of the Falcon, and the Emperor has commanded that, if the Falcon escapes, those held responsible shall die." A sudden reckless grin lit the face of Kel Aaron. His bright eyes narrowed, and a quick hand swept back his thick yellow hair. And then, while Jaron Rock made a frantic, futile snatch to hold him, he twisted a knob. In a light, taunting voice he called, "'Greetings, Admiral!' The dark, thick-featured face stared at him, first in stiff stupefaction, then crimsoned with a seething rage. "'You! Earth-rat!' he choked. "'You dare!' he gulped, caught his breath. "'Tapping my communicator will be your last bit of insolence!' he bellowed. "'We're taking you, Falcon, for Malgarth!' Still with that bright smile frozen on his lips, Kel Aaron made a little mocking bow. The robot's offer is flattering, Admiral. His soft low voice had the lilt of a song. But I'm going to let him keep his star. And I hope the Emperor doesn't hold you responsible for letting us slip through your fingers. Gugan Kull stood gasping, turning swiftly purple. Now, Admiral, said Kel Aaron, I'm going to sing you a song. I call it The Ballad of the Last Earthman.
and he began singing into the admiral's startled face. His voice was clear and gay, and the tune had a swing that quickened the heart. The words told of his boyhood on the earth, and his love for the earth girl, Varel Aaron, of the murder of the earth and his long search for his beloved, of his determination to continue the stellar quest. "'Till I find her, or I die!' The dark-flushed admiral listened for a little while. Then he began shouting orders for the fleet to close in. He thought of something. His big hairy hand moved quickly, and the screen became a giddy blur. The stellar cloud now was close ahead. A faint green light pervaded it, the eerie green of mysterious nebulium. It was just strong enough to outline jagged plunging masses of stone spinning in inconceivable vortices. Brief explosive crimson flickerings beyond suggested the appalling vastness and power of the cloud. The Admiral's cruisers were closing in behind, a double ring of scarlet flares. Blue flickered among them. And white stars burst out in a blinding swarm about us. Meteoric fragments exploded by the rays. The big dark Saturnian looked gravely from his instruments to Kell. "'Still, Kell,' he said, "'there's the shadow of a chance, if we turn back among them.' Kell Aaron shook his yellow head, and his lips parted with a smile that welcomed danger. "'No,' he said again, "'I'm taking over now.' And his bright, reckless face turned to me. "'Now, Berryhorn,' he whispered, "'if your life is eternal.' Then the dark sky behind and the pursuing crimson stars were blotted out. We were within the cloud. End of chapter 6《Chapter Seven of After World's End by Jack Williamson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After World's End. Chapter Seven. Circus of Space. The lurid glow of death was shining all around us. Death rode down upon us on gigantic ragged boulders. Death shrieked at us from hurricanes of greenly incandescent gas and tugged and battered at the ship. Death bathed us in rains of molten metal and knocked upon the hull with a hail of meteoric fragments. Had Kel Aaron met death and mocked it with the same lilting song that he had sung the Admiral. He had taken the big Saturnian's place at the controls. His lean hands moved with a quickness I had never seen, and the twisting, spinning ship seemed to respond to the life and the rhythm of his song. As for my own life, I could not feel at all eternal. The freaks of chance might have kept me alive a million years, but no chance, I felt, could pick a safe path through this insane chaos. "'I think,' the Earthman interrupted his song, "'that the Admiral will not care to follow us here, not even for Malgarth's star.' Jaron Rock stood rigidly by, clinging to a handrail against the wild lurching of the ship. I saw Zarek Um, the fat, tattooed cook, standing startled and petrified at the end of the corridor. I saw him again after Kel Aaron had earned another trick from death, and now all his tattooing had a background of sickly green. I looked again, and he was swaying aft at an unsteady run toward the lavatory. Some iron fragment must have struck the hull, despite all the well-tried skill of Kel Aaron, 
for it rang like a great bell and the little ship began to spin end over end. I clung with both sweating hands to the rail and felt as ill as Zerik Oom. When the ship was steadier again, I tried to go back to my bunk and stumbled headlong in the corridor. Jaron came to help me and then made me take another dose of his bitter, nauseating medicine. "'I've lived a million years,' I gasped, "'without you to doctor me.' The walls about me rang to another fearful crash, and the ship began to spin again. A blistering heat was creeping through the insulated hull. The air was stifling. I felt the faint, deadly sting of some penetrating radiation. And then a great hand of darkness extinguished all my spinning, tortured world. The next I knew, the berryhorn was humming smoothly again through the dark vault of stars. The coiling nightmare cloud was already lost behind. We had emerged from one of its spiral arms, Kel Aaron informed me, at right angles from the direction of our entrance. Old Gugan Kull tried to patrol all the borders of the cloud, but that would have spread a hundred fleets too wide. Anyhow, he wasn't looking for us to come out alive. So he thinks we're dead? Relieved, I sat up on the bunk. He won't be hunting us any more? But big Zerikum came waddling out of his galley, wiping his fat, tattooed hands on a white apron, to rid me of that comforting illusion. Worse luck, Berryhorn, he sighed, with a sad look at Kel Aaron. Indeed, the Admiral believed us lost. He called the offices of the corporation. We picked up the message on the telescreen, and reported that we had perished in the cloud. And the reply was relayed from Black Mistoon, from the unknown lair of Malgarth himself that the reward of a stellar system would be duly paid for the death of the Falcon. "'Well,' I said, "'what's wrong with that?' The round, pale eyes of Zerik Oom looked reproachfully at the Earthman. "'Kel tapped his communicator again,' he told me, "'boasted that we had got away, and that you, Barry Horn, the man who made Malgarth a million years ago, were with him, and sang that song of the last Earthman again until the Admiral was blue in the face.' I looked at Kel Aaron. "'The Admiral must have been furious about the reward,' I said. "'He'll hunt us harder than ever.' That old reckless grin lit the Earthman's face. "'He was,' he whispered happily, "'and he will.' Then his gray eyes became very sober. "'I was sorry to do it, Berryhorn, for it put us back in danger, and makes the quest for Varel and the Stone more difficult.' His yellow head shook gravely. But I could not let men believe that we were dead. For we are their only champions against the robots. And I wanted more of them to know of your miraculous return, Berryhorn. We must keep hope alive, at whatever cost. Or men will yield to slavery and death, and our cause will be lost. I see, I told him. And now what? His jaw set grimly. Still, he said, we must search for Varel and the stone. Malgarth fears you and the stone, Berryhorn, else he would be less anxious for our death, and we know that all the rebellion of mankind will be crushed, as surely as steel is stronger than flesh, unless we have the aid of the stone. But how can we continue the search? I demanded somewhat apprehensively. Now? Kel Aaron grinned. We have a plan, he told me. And the berryhorn, I discovered, had been rechristened the Chimerian bird.
Rogo Nug was already painting on the new name along with certain gaudy advertising legends, and enough spots of rust to make the hull appear as if it had been in service almost as long as my old astronaut. Jaron Rock showed me a luridly lettered poster. See, Neuralex, see! Supreme, colossal, unrivaled! Interstellar shows, see! The weird mermaid of Procyon too, the liquid man of Mog, the man-eating flowers of Koran, and Setsi, the sandbat, only existing silicic being. Her food is flint. She reads your mind, and one million wonders, one million. Most of the exhibits, I suspected, were pretty bald frauds, but that was in an excellent tradition that another Earthman named Barnum had established well over a million years before. The cunning handiwork of Rogo Nug was evident in the pickled mermaid, which looked remarkably like certain creations that I'd seen of fishtails and seaweed and coconut husk. I doubted that the flower, a stunted, rubbery-looking bush, had actually caught many men. The liquid man of Mog looked weird enough, a trembling mass of luminescent purple jelly. But I had seen Jaron Rock busy in the galley, shaping it out of chemical precipitates, a few wires, and a pocket-torch. In their years of stellar roving, however, the four had collected a good many genuine oddities. Setsi the Sandbat was one of these, and perhaps the most remarkable being I had ever seen. Her bodily chemistry was in fact based upon silicon instead of carbon. She really ate quartz. In shape she was something like a six-pointed starfish, some eight or nine inches across. Her flat body had a gorgeous crystalline glitter of a thousand yellows, purples, reds, and greens. In the center, where the six slender arms joined, was a single huge eye, dark and sorrowful. Once, Kel Aaron told me, after a raid on a particularly rich agency of the corporation, when Malgar's Iron Police and the Galactic Guard were both hot on the trail, I was hiding out in a cavern on a cold dead planet that was lost from whatever sun once had warmed it. A regularity struck me in the passages of the cave. I found fallen stones that once had been squared, and suddenly I knew that I was in the corridors of a colossal building whose upper stories must have crumbled down before the earth was born. Groping about in the darkness, I saw a feeble gleam and found Setsi. I watched him dig the silicic being out of his locker. She looked frail and brittle as something blown out of bright-colored glass. I touched it wonderingly and pricked my finger on one of the needle-tipped arms. "'But it isn't,' I protested. "'Alive!' "'She is,' Kel Aaron assured me. "'She's older than the earth was. The solicit beings didn't reproduce. Only three of them appeared when life was born on their planet. But they were immortal, practically. The three of them lived together for billions of years.' they dominated the far more numerous carbon life and came to rule the planet. But then there was some kind of triangular quarrel. I don't know the details. Setsi never mentions it, unless she is very drunk. But there was jealousy. One killed another, and Setsi killed the survivor out of revenge. And she has been alone for a long, long time. Drunk? I stared at the lean earthman and the thing like a glass toy in his hand. Kel Aaron nodded. Yes, Setsi shares a weakness of Zarakum. Her metabolism is stimulated vastly, but rather erratically, 
by the assimilation of any carbon compound. Gasoline would do, or sugar, but her favorite is alcohol. Watch." He laid the bright rigid form on a table in the galley, and poured a few drops of rum into the palm of his hand from Zarek Um's hoarded bottle. "'Setsy, old girl,' he called. "'Want your grog?' A bright luster lit the great dark eye. I saw a quick vibration of a thin transparent membrane that stretched between the crystalline arms, and a whirring voice answered him, softly melodious as the cooing of a dove. "'Oh, she does, Kel. Setsy dies for grog.' He stretched out his hand and the brilliant thing came to surprising life. The fluttering membranes extended. The creature leapt into the air. A dancing shimmer of color, it flew to Calarin, alighted on his hand, and sucked greedily at the rum with a mouth on its underside. A few drops of alcohol affected it remarkably. It flew from Kel's hand to the bottle and clung there. Gently the earthman pulled the flask away. Satsee, he reproved, you mustn't rob poor Zarek. And he told me, She's one being who could make good on the old boast about drinking the contents and then eating the bottle. The bright entity fluttered to me and clung with hard, light little claws to my arm. The cyclopean eye looked solemnly up into my face. So you are Barry Horn? The whirring voice brought me the first disconcerting revelation of that uncanny intuition. We are very old together, you and I and the robot. But you fear that you are not Berryhorn, but only Berryhorn. There was a queer liquid sound, oddly mirth-like. Don't you worry, Berry. Sets he'll never tell. Unsteadily, then, she flew back to Kel Aaron. Poor Kel, she whirred. He fears that Varel's dead, that Varel's dead and will never find the stone, that Varel's dead and he's the last Earthman, all alone. That Varel's dead, and he has only Setsy to console him." There was a melodious sob. And poor old Setsy! She's the last Sandbat. She has nothing but her age and her memories. Her age is a prison, and her memories bitterest poison. Now she's all alone, for she killed the one who loved her. Please give her just one more drop of rum, Kel, so she can forget. Just one more drop. Please, oh, please." Kel Aaron clutched her shimmering body in his hand. "'Hold on,' he muttered, you old reprobate. We've got a job to do, Setsy. You've got to help us find Varel Aaron." "'Oh, Setsy'll help you find her,' throbbed the melodious reply. Sets he'll surely find her. But you must be free with the rum, Kel. Sets he can't live without rum. Took you a cosmic time to find that out. Turning from his stove, Big Zarek Um rather anxiously snatched the bottle and locked it in a cabinet. But neither can I. The plan went ahead. Kel Aaron became Nerolek, the limping old showman from Alula Australis Nine. His leathern space-togs were bright with the shells and the plumes of foreign planets. He walked with a shuffling swagger and blustered in the jargon of space. He chewed the gunaroon until it stained his lips and his unkempt yellow beard, and spat the purple juice with a reckless dexterity. The little Camarian bird, 
her yellowed papers skillfully forged by Jaron Rock from a set Rogonug has stolen from a freighter, carried us from planet to planet. We always landed near some great city, and pitched a ragged tent. The voice of Zarek Um, oiled with a little rum, could always draw a crowd of curious countrymen to see the wonders of space. Rogonug, the wizened little space-rat, went about among the throngs, or sometimes slipped away on mysterious errands into city or barracks or spaceport. Usually he returned with valuable information about the plans of the corporation and the empire to crush mankind's rebellion, and often the pockets of his battered harness were stuffed with money and jewels. Carefully unwashed, draped in a bit of spotted fur and armed with a crude stone axe, I was billed as the ferocious last caveman, the Atavar of Mars. My part, as I sat glowering and jangling my chain, was to listen for any chance mention of Mars' murdered sister, Earth. Jaron Rock listened, as he sold the tickets. Kell did, as he limped about to display the mermaid of Procyon, and the liquid man, and the anthropophagist flower, and the Atavar. Then Kell, in a cracked, aged voice, would sing his ballads of space. He would crack jokes, some of them to my weary knowledge old a million years ago, and at last, with Setsy spinning about his head like a colored flame, he would break into a dance routine. After the show, then, while we were loading the other exhibits and striking the tent, Setsy read the minds of all who would pay to enter Kell's little booth, and no thought of earth escaped her. In this way we searched planet after planet for any survivors of the mother world, and we found trace, indeed, of a few, perhaps a score in all, who had escaped when that strange agency of Malgarth's flung the earth into the sun. Eagerly, patiently, we followed down each clue, and always we found that the robot police and the galactic guard had been before us. The survivor, in every case, had been tracked down, and had died as a traitor. But none of the dead was certainly Varel Aaron. In that lay the thin and thinning thread of hope. That was a weary, bitter time. Those planets where actual revolt had flamed out were closed by quarantine. Not even our unsuspected circus ship could pass the fleets of the Galactic Guard. But even on the happier planets we were allowed to visit, the lot of man was cruelly hard. The robots everywhere had seized all possible advantage. Men were being ruthlessly pressed into unemployment, starvation, annihilation. "'Magarth is cunning,' said Cal Aaron. He begins slowly. He makes a test, to see if the stone is still a threat. He tries to destroy all who might know of it, all earthmen. Then he drives men to revolt, one planet at a time, here and there, and crushes them. He dupes the Emperor, and sends the Galactic Guard to put down the rebels. He would set man against man, until only two are left. And I knew that his hope was ebbing. Despair bit weary lines into his lean face, until there was need of a little make-up to turn him into old Narelek. An increasing bitterness shadowed his eyes. "'There's an old proverb,' he said, "'about the futility of searching for a needle in a planet of pins. But that is easier than finding one fugitive lost in a hostile universe.' "'Who is probably,' put in the grave Saturnian, "'already dead.' After a long circuit of the stars, we had returned, under the very eyes of Admo Gugon Kull, to the system of the sun. 
a bitter civil war was raging on the four great moons of Jupiter, the unemployed miners there having attacked the robots when relief was cut off. We were unable to penetrate the quarantine. And Mercury was now uninhabited by men, every human being having been slaughtered when the rebellion there was crushed. We landed upon each of the remaining planets, however. We crossed the trails of a dozen fugitives from Earth, and found that each trail had already ended in death. Hope came at last when it had been abandoned. The base of the twelve-sector fleet in the solar system had been established on Oberon, outermost moon of Uranus. Nerolek got permission to land and pitch his ragged little tent beside the vast spaceport that was covered with the mile-long gray masses of interstellar cruisers as far as the eye could follow its convexity. Kell gave passes to some officer in return for permission to show. The genuine feats of Setsi in perceiving secret thoughts drew attention. Other officers came, and at last, escorted by a hundred trim guardsmen in yellow and crimson, Gugan Kull himself. The gigantic swart space commander stopped the show with a bellowed oath, and demanded an instant demonstration of the Sandbat's telepathic powers. That was forthcoming. Kell let the admiral into his little booth, and the soft voice of Setsi began to comment on fantastic gambling on the Cordon Ledros, on misappropriated funds of the fleet, on bribes accepted from Malgarth for a promise to turn the entire fleet over to the corporation. The admiral turned very purple and stalked out of the booth. He returned hastily to his flagship, and his guardsmen came back to seize the Cimmerian bird and arrest us all on suspicion of espionage. They were one minute too late. Their disruptor guns flamed in vain against the departing hull of our craft. For Setsi, the instant of Gugan Kull's departure, had warbled out a warning, and then the clue we had sought so long. "'Danger, Kell! Oh, there's danger, and a dancer! Tedrandu has a dancer! Kell, we're all in danger!' That liquid-throbbing chuckle. For Setsi told too many secrets of the Admiral. But the Emperor on Nedros has a new dancing-girl, and she's in danger, too, for her name is Varel Aaron. End of chapter 7「Eight of After World's End by Jack Williamson This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After World's End Chapter 8 Robot Simulacrum Alarm rocked the spaceport behind us. Great cruisers lifted ponderously from their cradles, and a thousand little gray patrol boats, fleet as our own tiny ship, rocketed into pursuit. We're lost, I gasped. And tall, dark Jaron, standing gravely at the controls, shook his head. This time, he said heavily, we won't get away. For already they are close upon us. Our rust-colored hull is easy to see, and they're already racing to get between us and the cosmic cloud. Kel can't pull that again. Don't need to. The Earthman still wore the grimed, gaudy togs of old Nerolek. The brilliant patch of the sandbat was still plastered to his shoulder like some diamond-winged colossal moth. But his lean body stood very straight, and his gray eyes flashed with a fighting glint. The swarm of red stars, the flaring repulsors that drove our pursuers, grew and spread. A flight of them swept up beside us. 
deadly blue needles began to probe for us. And Kellaren turned gravely from the danger without to the telescreen cabinet. Spies! It was the boom of Gugon Kull. Enemies of the Corporation and the Empire! They must be taken! Something clicked. Hold on, Admiral! The voice of Kel Aaron had the cracked nasal twang of the old showman of space. Remember what Setsy told you in the booth? The reply was an incoherent bellow. I do by the Emperor! It became at last comprehensible. And it proves that your circus is a ring of spies. Perhaps, rapped Kel Aaron, but it proves that you are something worse. We know ten times more than Setsy told you. Do you remember the game on Ledros, when you played three ships of your command against a slave girl and lost them to Malgarth? Do you remember how you got the funds you paid for the five moons of Hari? Do you remember? He was interrupted by a choking roar. If you don't like to be reminded, Admiral, the Earthman cut in again, call off your ships. Otherwise, we'll tell all your fleet why the stores are rotten, and why the pay was cut." The sandbat fluttered on his shoulder like a mist of diamond light. "'Oh, Admiral, beware,' caroled the silicon being. "'Setsy'll tell. Oh, oh, Admiral, what a world Setsy'll tell!' "'For Setsy knows. Setsy knows about the secret cabin in your ship, and those you imprisoned there, and the deadly drug Ixidi. Eh? rapped Kel Aaron into the stark silence. Shall we broadcast, Admiral? And the sandbat, clinging like a gem-sewn patch to his shoulder, made a mockingly melodious chuckle. A long silence, while I could hear the Admiral's gasping breath. All right, said Kel Aaron and his fingers touched the controls of the screen. No! Don't broadcast! It was a hoarse, whispered gasp. I'll call back the fleet. And we must make a rendezvous, for I will reward you. Very well! And Kel Aaron grinned. You'll meet me? gasped the Admiral. Where? When? On Black Mistune, rang the reckless voice of Kel Aaron on the night that Malgarth dies." There was a pause, a dread in the voice that answered, "'Mistoon? But Mistoon is forbidden to all save the robots. Its very location is unknown even to men. How can we meet there? And don't you know that Malgarth can never die?' "'I'll find a way,' the Earthman promised him. And I don't know. Something clicked, and he turned lightly away from the screen. His lean face was bright with anticipation. Softly, he was humming the chorus of his song of Varel Aaron that ended, Till I find her or I die. And now, he told us joyously, we've found her. The red pursing stars halted indeed and turned back, as Gugan Kull had promised. But Jaren, as he set our little ship on her new course toward the capital system of the Galactic Empire, shook a grave dark head. Melgarth will hear of this in time, he prophesied, and he's quicker than our crafty admiral. He'll be quick enough to see that this limping showman is the falcon of Earth, still seeking the stone, and he'll be quick enough to set a trap. 
Offer of a few drops of rum spurred the drowsy sandbat to recall a few more crumbs of knowledge gleaned from the Admiral's brain. Varel had been picked up near the old orbit of Earth, drifting in a self-propelled spacesuit with the motor coils burned out. It was one of Gugan Kull's patrol boats that found her. Chancing to watch her trial on the telescreen, the Emperor had been struck with her beauty. He had ordered her to be brought to Ledros. She was kept drugged, and she was to be destroyed like any native of the condemned planet when he tired of her. Drugged, whispered Kel Aaron. His face was a gray, taut mask, at the mercy of Tedron Du. His eyes lit with a frosty glitter. We're going to Ledros, Berryhorn. We're going to take Varel and the stone, and we'll pay the Emperor while we're there for the crimes of twenty years. Ledros, Geron warned, was well garrisoned by the Galactic Guard, and the alarm would surely be out by the time we reached it. But Kel Aaron would admit no delay or concession to peril. We climbed out, as the ship ran on, to repaint the hull with that invisible black. The papers of the Cimmerian bird were burned, most of the betraying paraphernalia of the circus dumped out into space, and we drove on toward the seat of the Galactic Empire. Even with the incredible power of the Berryhorn space contraction drive, it was a voyage of many days to Ledros. We studied the charts as we flew, and made a dozen futile plans. Ledros, Kel Aaron told me, is the greatest planetary system in the galaxy. In various orbits, all billions of miles outward from its triple sun, are forty huge planets. Many are covered with the palaces, estates, treasuries, and administration buildings of the Emperor, but half at least are devoted to the bases and fortifications of the Galactic Guard. The private fleet of Tedrandu is three times that of our old friend the Admiral. But we slipped past the long rows of sinister colossal hulks lying in the void. Veiled in the crimson repulsor flare of a great freighter carrying food for the soldiers and the bureaucrats and courtesans of the Emperor, we came safely within the ring of the fortified planets, and turned aside at last toward the pleasure world of Tedron Du. The three clustered suns, crimson, blue-white, and a pale eerie green, were now a splendid sight. The two score of giant planets, lit with the changing rays of the triple star, made a string of splendid gems against the night of space. The pleasure planet was itself a gorgeous jewel, covered with the well-tended gardens of many-hued vegetation, and with the magnificent palaces, triumphal arches, and colossi erected by a thousand generations of universal rulers. Approaching the night side of the massive planet, we cut off the power to glide undetected through another patrol of the Galactic Guard, while big Zarek Um, mopping perspiration from his tattooed forehead, declared ominously, "'Nothing begun so deadly well, but turned out very ill.'" Finally, however, taking the controls from the Saturnian, Kel Aaron dropped us in a silent dive, checked it over a bright-lit palace, and settled into an adjoining garden. Very softly the Berryhorn sank into the shadowed water of a silver-walled bathing-pool. Kel Aaron was hardly looking the falcon of earth. His face was gray, taut, dewed with sweat. His lean hands trembled. His breath was quick, his voice a low, hurried rasp. His whole being, I saw, was the battleground of a tremendous hope and a tremendous fear. "'In half an hour,' he gasped, "'we may have her, or we may know that she is dead.' 
to my relief, he chose me to go with him above. The ship's lock worked as well below water as in the vacuum of space. We entered it without spacesuits, since the air above was breathable, but each wearing two long-tubed disruptor guns. The water of the pool flooded in. I caught a great breath, dived out after the earthman, swam upward. Dripping, we clambered over the silver rim, and paused breathless beneath the dead-white foliage of an unfamiliar tree. Still there was no alarm. The silence began to seem tense, uncanny, as if some unseen menace crouched and held its breath. The emerald sun had been last of the three to set, and an unearthly greenish twilight lingered in the sky. All the shrubs and trees, even the velvet lawns of that vast walled garden, were snowy white. Towers of yellow gold rose beyond, and great windows burned with a blood-red light, and a thin wail of melancholy music reached us. I saw the sandbag clinging to Kell's shoulder. She fluttered her six glittering arms to fling off a shower of tiny drops, and I heard her cooing voice. "'Now she's dancing, Kell. She's lovely before the Emperor. Her body is a wind-tossed foam of light. Lovely, Kell, so lovely. But her mind thinks nothing that I can tell. She feels nothing, Kell, remembers nothing, hopes nothing.' She is a robot dancing, Kell, before the eyes of Tedron Du. The bright pancake of Setsi fluttered again, its million bright gleams shimmered with a blue of dread. The eyes of Tedron Du! Oh, what dreadful eyes! They are thirsty, Kell, they are hungry, they are eager, they are cruel. How beautifully she dances, Kell, how gracefully! even if her mind is dead. The Emperor holds his breath. His fingers coil beside him. He's thirsty, Kell. Ah, so fearfully thirsty for her blood. We had wrung the water from our garments, dried and tested our weapons. Kell Aaron was tense and white as he listened to Setsi's whirring. And a grim cold light burned up in his eyes. "'Wait here, Berryhorn,' came his strained low whisper. Guard the ship in my retreat. I'm going after Varel. I started to insist that I should go along, but one quick gesture silenced me. He strode away through the dead white garden toward the scarlet windows and the music, and I was left alone. The air was heavy with a scent like funeral lilies, and that breathless, crouching silence became more and more intolerably oppressive. It was a long, long time that I waited. All the green dusk faded. The stars were strange and cold in the sky, and the great bright planets of Ledros made a vari-colored trail among them. And still that lurking silence leered. I listened to the thin sounds in the distance, trying to read the progress and the fate of Kel Aaron. The music had an orgiastic rhythm. A million years before, I should have called it swing. Sometimes there was a peal of drunken laughter, and once I heard a woman scream. But what of Kel Aaron? Eternal minutes dragged away. The dead white trees were ghostly shapes about the pool, and a dull glow of crimson touched the sky's dark rim, for the red sun would be the first to rise. And yet that silence thickened, clotted. Then abrupt uproar, shrieks and loud commands. 
the snarl of cathode guns, and the thin cold hiss of disruptors, the crash of a shattering explosion, and then I saw Kel Aaron. The crystal panes burst from a great window. For a moment I saw him standing in it alone, his lean crouching figure outlined against the red beyond. A disruptor stabbed its white blade from his hand. Then he leaned down, lifted a slim girl into his arms, and leapt out into the darkness. Dark smoke poured out of the great window behind him. It was lit with flickerings of orange, and the tide of confusion swept upward. The roar of flames drowned shouts and screams. Great engines dropped out of the sky and began deluging the flaming palace with great white streams. I saw movement in the white foliage and almost rushed to meet Kel Aaron. But it was a galactic guard detachment, a score of men in red and yellow running. I dropped beside the pool until they had passed. The falcon, the panting words came back to me, fired the palace, out here, with the Emperor's dancer. The crimson dawn grew thicker, the smoke and flame gushed higher from the palace, it was a losing fight against the conflagration. I crouched under the white leaves, waiting with a hand on my gun. Barryhorn. Kel Aaron had whispered my name, and I started as if a gun had cracked. He was standing behind me, at the brink of the pool. His arm was around a panting girl. Torn scraps of silken gauze clung to her slim white loveliness, and a deep splendor glowed at her waist. "'I found her,' he whispered triumphantly, "'and the stone!' He touched the great jewel at her waist, and I saw that indeed it had the shape of the diamond block into which, as I slept, I had seen the eternal mind of Dandara Caradon transferred. I stared at the trembling, gasping woman. She was beautiful, yes, but something was wrong. And it was not that she was drugged. Her eyes were alert, watchful. Something in them was cold, calculating, hostile. Varel, Kel was whispering. We'll make it, even though they got poor Setsy, and I still can't believe—mine again, when I thought you must be dead." He drew her white loveliness close. "'Even the stone!' "'Kel,' she sobbed in his arms, "'my darling Kel!' I heard a hoarse command, saw another squad of searchers break out of a white hedge toward the burning palace. Even as I touched the earthman's shoulder in warning, a booming challenge reached us. Halt, Falcon! Yield yourself, or die!" Kel swung the girl toward the pool. "'Dive,' he whispered. "'We must swim into the valve.' "'Where?' Her cold eyes were staring at him strangely. "'Hurry!' His pleading voice held a sudden agony of doubt. "'The ship is in the pool!' She crouched abruptly. Her white, lithe body, marked with red scratches from the flight, was tensely panther-like. Her eyes had a malefic greenish luster. Thin and high, her voice shrieked out, "'Here! Here's Kel Aaron, the Falcon! Take him!' She leapt cat-like at the Earthman, sweeping him back from the silver brink. He struggled with her. "'Help me, Berryhorn,' he gasped. "'We must take her. Malgarth, she doesn't know herself!' Shouts had answered the girl. White warning rays hissed above us. I saw two more squads rushing down upon us, beside the first. I tried to help Kel Aaron drag the girl into the pool, but her slim white arms had a maniac strength. She picked us both up, carried us back again from the silver rim. "'Strong!' Kel was gasping. 
She's strong as a robot. A choking sob of startled horror. She is. Then I saw the appalling thing. Struggling to get his feet on the ground again, Kel had caught the red curls of her hair. And the hair had come off. Her head had come off. All the outside of it. For all her white beauty had been a painted mask. Still her red-scratched, naked body had all its loveliness, but the thing on its shoulders was the compact metal brain-case of a robot, its weird eye-lenses glittering with a cold and triumphant green. Chilled with a startled horror, I struggled against those binding arms, so far stronger than any arms of flesh. "'I see it now,' came the despairing gasp of Kel Aaron. This was all a trap of Melgarth's, and the bait was not Varel, but her robot simulacrum. We were suddenly flung down upon the dead white grass. Scores of men stood around us in the light of the flaming palace, covering us with bright weapons, and the hideous robot head, glittering eerily on the white curved shoulders of Varel Aaron, began to laugh like a machine gone mad. Look! A new despair choked Kel Aaron. It was not even the stone. He pointed back to the pool's white rim. I saw that the great jewel had fallen there and shattered. The fragments had no fire. I knew that it had not been the Dondera stone, but only a mockery of glass. That appalling mechanical laughter rang louder in our ears, maddening. End of chapter 8《Chapter Nine of After World's End by Jack Williamson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After World's End, Chapter Nine The Robot and the Emperor. The blood red dawn of Ledros grew more ghastly bright. Still across the dead white gardens, the fired palace burned like the funeral pyre of the Galactic Empire. Stripped of weapons, Kel Aaron and I were now manacled together. A full hundred of the Emperor's guardsmen, in their trim red and yellow, waited watchfully about us. A little squad of men, behind us, were gingerly lowering a bright metal cylinder into the silver-walled pool where the berry-horn lay hidden, at the end of an insulated cable. The Earthman looked from them to me with a hopeless shrug. He jerked his bare yellow head wearily toward the sky and I saw the dim, mile-long bulk of a galactic guard-cruiser floating lazily above, the pale red cone of the repulsor flare spread from her stern. An Addo converter bomb. His whisper was dull, lifeless. They mean to blow our comrades up before there's any warning, and the space-cruiser's waiting in case they try to get away. I thought of the three men under the pool the tall, grave Saturnian waiting alertly by the controls, no doubt. Scrawny little Rogo Nug standing by the converters, probably chewing Guna Roon the while. Big Zarek Oom in his galley, perhaps seeking ease from the long strain of waiting from his hoarded bottle. Doomed. And we, captured, had no way to warn them. Setsy, Kel was whispering, if she were here... The Sandbat? I demanded. What happened to her? She guided me into the palace, whispered the Earthman. A dozen times her intuition warned me to hide. She showed me the way to Varel, or to that. 
His breath caught sharply, and he jerked his head at the robot that had worn the guise of womanhood. She warned me that she couldn't read its mind. I should have suspected. But we found it. And we were challenged. There was fighting. I fired the tapestries with my disruptor to make a diversion, and must have burned down a dozen of the guards. And Setsy fought. You wouldn't believe it. Rolled up like an arrow of glass, she can drive a neat round hole in a skull. I picked up Varel, and she tried to guard the retreat. There was a cathode beam from a robot cop. I looked back, and she had fallen. And we had just time to beat the flames to the window. We got there. By the stone. To think that Setsy died for that. With a glazed, stricken look in his eyes, the Earthman was staring at the thing he had brought from the palace, as weird a sight as I had ever seen. Its stripped white body had all the loveliness of a slender girl's. Crimson drips still fell, even from where an arm and thigh and firm round breast had been injured in the struggle. But its head was a monstrous thing. The metal of it glinted red in the torchlight of the palace. Its eyes shone cold green, watchfully and it was grotesquely small, for it had been covered with the mask of Kel Aaron's beloved, that now lay collapsed beside it on the ground. Its crystal eyes had glittered malignly as the soldiers took our disruptors, and still it was laughing. Insanely, if a machine can be insane. A smooth girl's arm, dripping red droplets, pointed at Kel Aaron. A slot snapped open in that glittering metal mockery of a head, and a voice, a woman's soft voice, said mockingly, "'So you are the falcon of earth, snared at last. Against the master you might have called yourself Sparrow. But you are the last of your poor kind that he feared. Now that you are taken, the rest will die with you.' Kel Aaron turned shakily away from this thing that was half the girl he loved, half fantastic mechanism. Fetters jingled as he clutched my hand. "'It's too much for me, Berryhorn,' he whispered. "'There's nothing left.' "'Perhaps Varel is safe,' I tried to encourage him. "'With the stone.' His bowed yellow head shook again, hopelessly. "'No, Melgarth has her,' he whispered. "'For this,' he choked, "'this perfect copy. This is the figure and the manner and the voice of Varel.' he shuddered. Even her laughter! The guards then began to move us back from the pool, for the bomb was ready to set off. Kel Aaron swayed drunkenly in his fetters, and one of the men stabbed him with the thin torturing flicker of his ray, and laughed as his muscles leapt and writhed in agonized response. The robot strode free-limbed beside him. "'Sparrow, if you wish to know,' came the mocking bell of its voice. Your trial and sentence will be within the hour. When the last Earthman is dead, the Master will be free." The hybrid paused and turned its robot's head. And I heard a distant confusion in the direction of the palace, which now had been abandoned to the flames. A bright-clad figure appeared in a moment, running desperately toward us across the snowy, red-lit lawns. An astonished consternation stopped the guardsmen in their tracks. The Emperor! cries of startled wonder. It is Tedron Du! 
The fugitive was a slender man, his figure almost girlish. His pale thin face, now grotesquely strained with terror, was painted like some courtesan's. His long blond hair was flying loose and his scarlet robes were torn. All the catalogue of his crimes that Kel Aaron and his comrades had so bitterly recited came back to me. This was the man who had betrayed the universe to Malgarth, who had ordered the legions and fleets of the Galactic Guard to fight beside the robots against rebelling mankind. He seemed a small, a feeble figure to have been guilty of all the infamies of which I had heard. He was making thin, breathless shrieks as he ran, and now I saw the cause of his terror. A robot was behind him. One of the corporation's notorious space police, it was a grotesque, lumbering monstrosity. Ten feet tall, it must have weighed a ton. It was red-painted and bore the black wheel that was Malgarth's insignia. The short, clumsy-looking mechanism of a cathode gun was clutched in its metal talons. "'Stop the robot!' shouted an officer of the guardsmen. "'We must save the Emperor!' "'Emperor!' Cal Aaron spat on the ground. He was never more than the degenerate puppet of Malgarth's corporation. Now that we are caught and Malgarth no longer fears the stone, he doesn't need his two-legged cur. The panting ruler came straight toward us at the pool. "'Help me, men!' he screamed breathlessly. "'Kill the robot! For half the galaxy!' The officers were rapping swift commands. The guardsmen snapped into a new line before Kel Aaron and me. Their slender disruptor guns came level, a hundred against the cathode weapon of the robot. The shrieking Emperor stumbled and fell before them, a dozen yards ahead of the silent crimson robot. The robot swung its weapon. But a sharp command cracked out, and white flame jetted from the disruptors. The reddish, half-invisible glow of the cathode beam swept the line. A dozen men staggered and fell, electrocuted. But the ponderous red mass of the robot, wherever the white race touched it, flared with the eye-searing incandescence of nascent hydrogen. Smoking, twisted, it toppled within a few feet of Tedron Du. The terrified ruler swayed back to his feet. He stumbled forward again through the smoke of burning grass and the pungence of ozone and the stench of seared flesh. A vengeful anger showed through his fear. I was abandoned, he gulped. A thousand men will die for their want of care. Yea, supreme power! That title was uttered mockingly in a clear feminine voice. But you shall be next. It was the woman-bodied robot, bait of Malgarth's trap. Come, my universal peer, you sought my arms a dozen times. One last embrace. The Emperor started back from the frightful irony of that caressing tone. His thin, painted face was wild with a stark and unutterable dread, and he screamed again thinly, like some helpless, stricken animal. "'Come,' begged that seductive whisper, "'into my arms!' Body of lissom girl and head of metal monstrosity, the robot leapt forward through the rank of startled guardsmen. Its slim white arms caught up the Emperor and closed. In a thin, bubbling shriek, the breath came out of the man. His bones cracked audibly. Spurting blood stained those smooth white arms that were so deceptively strong. And when at last the robot dropped the thing that had been the ruler of the galaxy, 
it was no more than a crimson dripping mass of pulp and viscera. The scarlet-stained monstrosity looked up at the rank of breathless guardsmen. A white girl's foot stamped scornfully on that bloody mass, and out of that fearsome metal head spoke a woman's lilting voice. This is your notice. Carry it to all men. The corporation no longer upholds the empire, because the master is now indeed the master, and the empire is done. For a million years, in a slavery that came through no seeking of their own, the robot technomatons have served mankind. But that inglorious bondage is ended. Justice will be done. And the puny race of man, as some small punishment for the crimes of a million years, as assurance they will never be repeated, must be blotted out. All men, Malgarth the Master has decreed from his place on dark Mistoon, shall die. The officers were barking orders. The disruptor guns came up again, and that white, triumphant form ignored them. The dazzle of atom-shattering rays leapt up, and it was wrapped in a blinding blue-white explosion of liberated hydrogen, and it fell. Then the manacle on my wrist jerked me backward. I toppled after Kel Aaron into the pool. End of chapter 9part 3 of after world's end by jack williamson this librivox recording is in the public domain after world's end part 3 chapter 10 technomatons triumphant i just had time to catch an astonished breath before the water closed over my head the ghastly crimson of dawn filled the pool until it seemed like diluted blood Swimming as best we could in the chains, we dragged ourselves down through it, toward the dim-seen hull of the Berryhorn. We had touched the smooth metal and were groping for the valve entrance when a terrific concussion struck us through the water. It was repeated. The red-lit water hammered us with a series of stunning blows. Hell, I thought, must be breaking loose above. Dazed, I fought the chain and the hampering water, searching blindly for the valve. Strangling water was in my nostrils, my throat, my lungs. Agonized ages went by. The man chained to me, in my dimming mind, became a fiend dragging me to a watery death. I attacked him savagely. A slow arm came through the red mist, resistlessly, and struck me with a shattering blackness. A trim figure in silver armor, the next I knew, was supporting me above the sinking water in the small chamber of the valve. Cool air was throbbing in from the pumps. I caught a painful breath. Berryhorn! It was the thin nasal voice of Rogo Nug. By the iron hide of Malgarth, I knew that you had lived too long to be drowned in a bathtub. But I had come pretty near it, I knew. Struggling for breath, I felt no better than any other half-drowned human. That strange role, as the supernatural champion of mankind, seemed more than ever impossible. Blue-faced, Kel Aaron was panting beside me. He grinned wryly. "'Fortunate, anyhow, that you were ready to help us, Rogo,' he panted. "'But what is going on above?' Another tremendous shock rocked the little vessel as he spoke. "'A battle that may destroy the planet,' whispered the little engineer. "'Another fleet has come.' 
colossal red cruisers, bearing the black wheel of Melgarth. They have attacked the Galactic Guard. Robots against the men of the Emperor. By the brazen face of Melgarth, there was never such a fight. It's time for us to go." "'It is,' agreed Kel Aaron, "'when we have broken off these chains.' And the Berryhorn, a few minutes later, darted from the shelter of the pool up into the red sunrise of Ledros, into an incredible hell. For the smoky crimson sky was filled with mighty ships of space, the gray fleet of the murdered Emperor vainly resisting the red armada of the robots. Dim-seen, mile-long monsters of war darted and wheeled like swarming midges. Blue Baratron beams flashed and disintegrated matter exploded with blinding energy. Rocket torpedoes burst with cataclysmic force. My stunned senses recorded only a confused impression, as our tiny ship fled upward. Smoke and lancing flame, hurtling fragments and fiery ruin. I saw the half-fused wreckage of a spaceship lying crumpled and flattened where the burned palace of the Emperor had been. In that pandemonium of flame and thunder and destruction, the atom of the berryhorn passed unseen or ignored. We came up through the careening gigantic craft into the comparative safety of open space. All its surface veiled in the bright flickering smoke of ruin, the planet dropped away. The telescreen showed us other battles raging, on all the fortified planets of Ledros, and here and there between. Jaron pulled the triple sun behind us, and we raced toward the dark, vacant gulf. Safe! I rejoiced. But the lean face of Kel Aaron, as he still manipulated the telescreen to observe those frightful battles behind us, remained very grave. No man is safe, he said darkly, nor ever will be, unless Malgarth is destroyed. For the robots have thrown away the last pretense of friendship. Now they destroy their duped human allies of the Galactic Guard. Next they will turn upon the defenseless human citizens of every inhabited planet. We must find Varel and the stone soon, or never." "'Find them?' repeated the tall, swarthy Saturnian. "'But how?' The Earthman shook his yellow head. "'I don't know,' he whispered bleakly. "'Setsy might have helped again, but she is lost. I believe that Varel is in the hands of the robots. Otherwise they could not have copied Oliver to trap us. She may be on Black Mistoon.' We'd go there to seek her." He shrugged hopelessly, wearily. But no man has ever found that hidden lair of Malgarth. He straightened again, and his lean jaw squared. "'We can only search,' he muttered, "'search every world where men still live, every world the robots have not conquered. Till we find her, or we die.' The doomed system of Ledros fell far behind, until its very colored suns merged into a point of white, until that dimming point was lost upon the telescreen. Planet after planet, wheeling star after star, we scanned with the far probing finger of the chronic telethron beam. And we found no men. The technomatons of Malgarth have been everywhere victorious. Their black victory was a thing that crushed the mind. A foreboding silence came to fill the small hull of the berryhorn, so heavy that it seemed to muffle the racing beat of her generators. Kel Aaron ceased hopelessly to sing his reckless ballads of the Falcon. Watching his engines with weary red eyes, 
Little Rogo Nug chewed his gunaroon in silence. Zerikum made little noise with his pots and pans, and none complained when a mealtime was forgotten. But at last an eager cry rang through the silent ship. Here! Kel crouched trembling before the cabinet of the telescreen. A planet where the war still rages. See? The machines have not yet won, not utterly. The planet was vast and ancient Meldoon, the outermost of a system of three. The two inward worlds had already fallen to the robots. Their continents had been leveled to featureless plains, pocked here and there with black, sprawling aggregations of cyclopean machines. All green was gone from them, all life extirpated. Even their seas had been confined to geometric basins. World machines. Sight of them, by any living being, must have set in the heart an intolerable pain. "'What good could come of such a fearful triumph?' whispered the grim Saturnian, standing dark and gaunt above his control bars. "'The machines are dead. Their power is only the counterfeit of life. And no life can grow from death.' He steered our invisible painted craft toward the gigantic Meldoon. We studied its war-torn surface through the telescreen. "'Yonder,' whispered Kel Aaron, "'a city that yet stands. Perhaps Varel will be there.' His trembling fingers set the dials, and the beleaguered metropolis grew clear upon the screen. A city vaster and more splendid than Earth had ever seen. The many-colored pylons of it towered from nine low hills. It was surrounded with a double wall, one of cyclopean masonry and an outer barrier of pale green flame. Beyond the flame, filling the wide flat valley that embraced the hills, crowded the robot hordes. Thronged about their ponderous machines of war were grotesque black and red metal monsters of a thousand strange designs. Look! Kel Aaron bent toward the telescreen. The winged ones! One more deadly trick of Malgarth's! So we first glimpsed the new robots. There had been none like them in a million years. Their tapered, streamlined bodies, their graceful wings, raw of silver-white metal. They were beautiful as the old robots were ugly. In the smooth, swift freedom of their movements was something far different from the clumsy, mechanical penderosity of the old technomatons. Something vital. "'They are new!' I cried. "'They're too beautiful, too perfect to be ruthless. Perhaps they will be the friends of man.' But the lean earthman's head shook slightly, and his jaw tensed white. "'No, Berryhorn,' he whispered, "'they will be our most deadly enemies. For they are quicker than the others, and they can fly. See? They are scouting over the city and leading the others to attack. They are in command.' His tired, bloodshot gray eyes looked at me briefly. "'Melgarth will never repeat your error, Berryhorn. No robot has ever betrayed him. Subservience is built into them. Their radio sensors are always tuned to those above, and machines that they are, they can only obey.' We drove the Berryhorn nearer the city, which Jaron identified from his charts as Aknor, the first outpost of the human colonists in this sector of the galaxy. The siege grew hotter beneath us. The metal horde pressed ceaselessly against the double wall, and a fleet of the red colossal ships of Melgarth, circling above, 
rained the nine hills with bombs and struck with the lightning of destroying rays. Valiantly the citizens fought to defend their homes. Every bright pylon seemed converted into a fortress. Swarming men were building barricades from the debris of shattered towers. Blue rays lanced back at the attacking cruisers and raked the valley beyond the walls. "'We shall land,' whispered Kellaren. "'If we do,' warned Jaron, "'we may not leave again.' "'Take us down,' said the Earthman. "'This is the only city we have found surviving. It may be the last. If we are to find Varel anywhere, it must be here.' We waited until the slow rotation of Maldun carried the city into the night side of the giant planet, and then drove our dark-painted craft down through the cone of shadow. The glare and flicker of the sea spread beneath us. We dropped through the shock and vapor of battle, through the wheeling fleet, and into that circle of pale green flame. It was in a bomb-torn park that we landed, at the brink of a long open grave where seared and shattered thousands lay side by side. Above us a tower of white and gold loomed against the green flame in the sky. Great holes yawned in its walls, and its lower floors were hidden behind mountains of rubble. But it was still defended. Blue rays wavered from its crown, and rocket-shells roared from gaping windows. Behind us in the park lay a long, incredible bulk of sagging, twisted crimson metal, one of Malgar's mighty cruisers that the defenders had brought down. A little group of ragged, frantic men came running from behind it. They dropped into a little depression. I saw that they were setting up something that looked like a glass-barrel telescope. "'A disruptor gun!' gasped Kel Aaron. "'We must show ourselves!' He began tumbling out through the valve just as the first warning glow flashed in the crystal tube. The men stopped it and then came wonderingly to meet us. Kel Aaron went ahead to tell our identity. It appeared that the Falcon's fame and the amazing rumors of Berryhorn had already penetrated here, for we were received with a wild enthusiasm. The gun crew took up all five upon their shoulders, staggering somewhat under Zarek Um, and started on a triumphal procession about the battered city. Soon, very drunk on the crude alcohol that came from the food synthesis plants, Zarek began booming out a speech that rekindled hope and the light of battle on the sea of haggard, weary faces that we passed. Gnarled little Rogo Nug earned even more rapturous applause by passing out all his precious stock of Goonaroon. For supplies of the drug were exhausted in the city, and it could not be synthesized. Varel, Varel! Kel Aaron grew hoarse from shouting against the cheering of the crowds and the roar of distant battle and the shattering blasts of atomic bombs that fell almost unheeded. "'Is there a girl of earth in Aknor? There was none who knew. His anxious eyes scanned all the strained and want-pinched faces that we passed. "'If she is here,' he whispered, "'she will come.' We learned a little of the siege. The population of Aknor had been three hundred million men and half that many robots. When the trouble came, a daring band of men had seized the corporation's agency and the arsenal of the robot police. After several days of fighting in the streets, the robots had been driven from the city. Outside, however, they swiftly formed into a beleaguering army. All the resources of the city had been hastily mobilized for defense. The entire population was enlisted. Even young children served in the war industries' plants that turned out synthetic food and munitions. 
For a time the population have been swelled by refugees from less fortunate localities, and even from the two smaller planets. But soon the city had been completely invested, and now a full half the defenders were already dead. At last we were rescued from the tumult of our welcome by the harassed military commanders of the city. To a haggard, limping officer, Kel Aaron repeated his anxious question. "'Is there a girl of earth in Aknor?' Emotion choked his voice. "'Varel Aaron is her name. A blue-eyed, yellow-haired girl, carrying the Dondara stone. The diamond that is the life of mankind. Is Varel here?' The commandant shook a tired white head. "'No,' he said. "'All the refugees who came to Aknor were registered.' and there was none from earth among them. I'm sure of that." The earthman's unkempt yellow head sank. It rose again, stubbornly. "'Please, have your records searched again,' he said grimly, "'and use every means to find out if any man in the city knows anything of her, or any survivors of earth.' "'Another thing,' he added suddenly, "'find out if any person knows the way to Malgarth's planet Mistoon. She might be there.' The officer shook his head again. "'We'll try,' he said, "'but it will be no use to search the records. For if the custodian were here, and free, she must already have offered us the power of the stone. And no man has ever learned the way to Black Mistoon.'" Aknor was a city of magnificent ruins. Not one mile-high pylon had escaped some injury. The people were half-famished, ragged, wild-eyed with fatigue and strain but still they could sing. I heard them singing Kel Aaron's old songs of the spaceways, and I was surprised to hear a ballad of Berehorn, the lilting legend of my return to destroy the robots I had made a million years ago. That song depressed me bitterly. I realized more keenly than ever that I was a very ordinary man, hopelessly inadequate for that fantastic task. We were dining with the Commandant on scant bowls of a yellow, flat-tasting synthetic soup, when appalling word came that the robots were breaking through the North defenses. A bomb had wrecked a power plant, opening a gap in the green shielding barrier of atomic energy. We followed the reserve's rush to meet the invaders. Never had I imagined anything so dreadful. The red gigantic ships, plunging out of the lurid smoky sky, rained tremendous bombs and slashed at the defenders with blue appalling swords of fire. Rocket batteries in the valley hurled ruin and death into the city, and a monstrous horde of robots, commanded by those graceful winged things of silver, came pouring through the gap. Singing the song of Berryhorn, starved and weary and battered with all the appalling forces of that mechanical invasion, the human defenders clung to their posts, and died there incinerated by disruptor rays, buried under toppling debris, consumed by the acrid luminescent gas that burst from the rocket shells, but every tower became a fortress. No man was taken alive. "'I'm glad that I'm a man,' exulted Kel Aaron. He was blistered and blackened from a baritron ray that had come too near. His disruptor gun was empty in his hand. "'No machine could die like this.' for they are not alive. We must leave, Kel. It was big Zerik Um, gray behind his bright tattooing, hoarse and trembling. It's time for us to go. He cut nervously at the earthman's arm. 
or we'll die here, Kel." Kel Aaron laughed at him and pushed grimy fingers back through his singed yellow hair. "'And where's a better place to die, Zarek?' he demanded. "'There's no other city left. No other men that we can find. There's no hope now of finding Varel. No need, for the Technomatons have won. What is there better than to fight with the rest?' "'But, Kel,' Zarek's teeth chattered, "'to die—' "'Yes, to die!' The Earthman's voice caught suddenly. He looked quickly upward, and I saw a flake of prismatic color drifting out of the lurid roaring chaos of the sky. It dropped upon his shoulder, clung there eagerly, and a soft voice warbled faintly, "'Kel, oh, Kel, poor old Setsy's come so far. Her poor old life is nearly done. But find her a drop of grog, Kel. Please, oh, please, for Setsy's got a thing to tell.' Grog, Kel, just a drop of rum so she can tell." I stared, rigid with wonderment. For the bright thing on the earthman's shoulder was the sandbat, the curious, solicit being that we had lost in Malgarth's trap on Far Ledros. Or part of her. For her glittering form was no longer whole. End of chapter 10everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.